Tonight I'd like to uh, continue to reflect on the uh, practice of um, first foundation of mindfulness that we've started the retreat with this morning. The encouragement to be more fully here. The, uh, the as uh, Kisaro uh, translated from the original text, the term that the Buddha used in regards to this practice of mindfulness, he called it the Eka Ekiyana Maga, which means Eka means one, Yana means uh, path, way, one way path, direct path, the direct practice for the realization of Nibbana, for the realization and the taste of peace. This uh, practice of mindfulness, the, the whole point of it ultimately is to bring us to taste the depth of peace the mind and the heart, when it lets go of craving, desire, aversion, recognizes its uh, own true nature as peaceful. Uh, to really be able to taste that, to abide with that, to know that, which is our true uh, human inheritance, to be able to know directly this peace, profound peace. Most of the time, uh, we don't experience peace. We experience the mind in a state of agitation, uh, body in a state of stress, a state of emotional reactivity, a state of doubt, anxiety. It's often what we, as human beings, we're often very uh, oppressed by these kinds of states and we lose touch with the innate peacefulness of our nature. Uh, And uh, so we uh, wander with a sense of great discontent, uh, fueled by a sense of unsatisfactoriness, not being able to feel any depth of contentment or satisfaction. Is that a word? Satisfaction? (laughs) It's a new word. (laughs) Feeling satisfied. So this, uh, this is uh, to, to, to know that this doesn't have to be uh, our, our state, that we don't have to just be in a state of agitation and discontent all the time, searching, that we can actually work towards this practice the Buddha taught is a way of, the direct way, to taste this peace. This way is the way of mindfulness, the way of remembering, the way of gathering, the way of being here. First of all, as we've been encouraged to to keep remembering that it's not somewhere else in the future. Somewhere, somehow we'll get to that destination when we've done enough retreats or when we somehow deserve it or when we can sit in a full lotus or something, somewhere, sometime, we'll get to that special place. And just that that very premise already obstructs our ability to recognize that here and now it's also um, Kinesar reminded us from uh, teaching from the, sutta, the Mula Sutta, Root Sutta, where the Buddha encouraged us to know Vimutti Sarasabhaitamma, which means that in every circumstance, in every situation, even if it feels difficult, even if it's busy, even if the mind is distracted, that peace is always here and now. Freedom is always here and now. So if we think about it, then we already uh, become disconnected from our ability to really recognize this truth. So in this practice, the, the encouragement is to practice mindfulness as a way of returning. So the first 
returning to this to this nature, to this peaceful nature, to recognize this underlying peace. This first foundation of mindfulness, the Buddha starts off by encouraging what he called to take ourselves temporarily, not forever, not permanently, but to remove ourselves from the busyness of the world to what's the word is called viveka, which means to withdraw from the the, the longing and the hankering of the mind, to withdraw the mind from its hankering and longing for the things of the world. This, today we've been practicing this again and again. The mind will often go to hanker, to long, to worry, to be agitated. So this first part of the training of mindfulness is to learn to keep withdrawing the mind from its preoccupations to keep returning, to keep remembering again and again, moment by moment, to withdraw the mind from the grief and the disappointment for the world. So easy to have a lot of sense of uh, upset and grief and profound disturbance about how the world is. So many painful and difficult things that happen around us. Uh, We can't avoid knowing about. We're flooded with one disaster after another, breakdown of the ecological, environmental systems, uh, wars, uh, violence, oppression. Just um, recently... Sarah and I, actually, just over 10 days ago, we came back from uh, South Africa, where we have a small hermitage where we've been living on and off for many years. And um, becoming more aware that uh, one of the beautiful things about that country is that there is uh, these large uh, wilderness parks, game parks, and one of the things that's been happening in the last few years is there's been a, a huge decimation of the rhino population. The horns being sawn off and shipped over uh, to uh, countries where people believe that uh, the rhino horn has some magic kind of property. So it's very tragic. It's very hard not to feel a great sense of sadness and distress and it's only one little corner of the world. It's, it's happening everywhere, every, uh, every situation. There's so many species that we're witnessing dying and being eradicated and struggling for survival. It's just one dimension of our changing, rapidly changing world and environment. It's very stressful. It's very upsetting. It's very difficult to see how, how unconscious we can be. It's not to deny those realities. It's not to try and avoid them. It's not to just be an ostrich. But for the sake of gathering some strength, some reality, some rootedness, some ability to know a refuge, to know our true refuge, so that then when we have that, we can turn to the world with some clarity, some strength, not just be in a state of reactivity, to actually gather and to be able to gain this strength and this first foundation, this first training of mindfulness is this ability, learning this skill, to not always have to dwell on the painful or the difficult or the upsetting or the anxious or the worry or not always have to be propelled by the longing for what we would like to be or for the aims of what we would like to accomplish or for the speculation for what might happen the sort of pathways of where the mind goes so this training that the Buddha started as the first foundation of mindfulness is to again and again viveka, to withdraw, to be able to say, yes, that's all of that's there, 
but not now. We can worry or think about this at another time. You could set some time aside every day to have a worry, 10 minutes, (laughs) go through one's list of worries. (laughs) But it's actually very strengthening to be able to little by little train mind, just to say, not now, don't have to go to that place, to turn the mind away to turn the attention away, to begin to train the attentiveness, the attention to rest here. This is, uh, in many ways, this is, uh, this skill or this ability is connected with one of the very important uh, support for the path of practice, which is this spiritual perfection, or what's called paramita, strength, what's called nikama, which means to be able to renounce or be a, to be able to, to simplify, to put down. It's not a very popular idea. Sometimes when we enter uh, the art and the discipline of contemplation, meditation, or if we're interested in awakening, we can come from a place of thinking it's about something we need to get, something more that we haven't got already, something more that we need to be, rather than actually being more a process of learning to, to let go or to let be or to empty out, to simplify. Another aspect of this viveka, withdrawing the mind from its preoccupations, from its longing, from its hankering, from its disappointments and grief, aspirations for the world, is to actually learn to simplify. In a way, this training attention to be with here and now is is a very subtle level of renunciation. Because we find our thoughts and our stories so compelling, even if they're quite painful, they're still very compelling to us. So they're familiar. Somehow we get stuck on these pathways of the mind thinking about this and that and the other and what happened and what might happen. But to there's some resistance, isn't there, sometimes to actually try and turn attention away from that to the simplicity of the rhythm of the body, the slower rhythm of the body, the steps of the walking meditation, the rhythm of the breath. This this foundation and being able to simplify, to renounce, to let be, is very connected with this development of mindfulness. It's interesting to uh, remember and reflect that the Buddha himself, as a, as a lifestyle that he chose to live after his awakening, was founded in a lifestyle of renunciation. He, uh, he had the possibility of having prestige and wealth and renown, political power, and then his choice was to, to let that go. And actually day by day to, to live, and this, uh, this is a kind of interesting reflection for us, to live on whatever was offered by, in way of uh, food and robes, places to stay. It's not to suggest that we should all go out and live like that, but as an inner reflection, it can be very helpful because the mind is always often in a state of it of things not being enough. It just needs to be something a little bit more to make us feel comfortable or make it feel right. So we have an enormous industry 
industries of helping us to feel more comfortable or more right. And none of that's necessarily always bad or wrong, but it, it robs us of our inability to, to actually explore ways of being content, fulfilled with one breath with the simplicity of a, a day where not much is happening, like in a retreat. Maybe at first, on the first day like this, it's, it's, uh, it's not so easy if we're used to having a lot of things going on to pull the plug out and just to be with the simplicity of the unfolding of a day. But so often what can start to happen is we can begin to recognize how how, how peaceful, how beautiful it can be with just the simplicity, walking, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, feeling, breathing, being. Something that's very precious that we often don't have the opportunity in the busyness of our life to really appreciate So this, uh, the um, um, when uh, we lived in the monastic life, the, the daily training, which actually I still find helpful, and my life is a lot more complex in terms of possessions and duties and things to to respond to than ever it was when living in a monastery. Though that has its own complexity, not as, always as ideal as people would make out, but still in terms of, of things, duties, possessions, and so on, certainly a lot more complex, but I, I, found, I still find that training that we receive so valuable of day, every day reflecting that whatever is offered for the day in terms of food, in terms of lodging, in terms of robes, uh, to accept that, to, to appreciate that. It might be a palace, it might be a hut. If one can approach life from that perspective, then one becomes very flexible. One doesn't have to demand that everything suits our, our desires There's not enough in this world to suit all of our desires. We we know that now. (laughs) We're finding that out. We, We can't get to the end of desire through consuming and trying to fulfill our desires. So rather, instead, coming to the end of desire by realizing we don't have to be beholden to every flicker of the mind that feels it needs things to be a different way. So these kinds of opportunities of coming into a retreat where we're living as a community and we haven't got a lot of control over the circumstance, the food, how things unfold. Actually, food is great. (laughs) It's very comfortable here. But it's a, a good opportunity for us to see the mind out of its natural um, comfort zone. It can be take us to an edge, some kind of edge where a little bit of challenge for us to you know to meet that. How do we meet that? Do we try and change the whole circumstance to make ourselves feel more at home, or can we actually learn to accept and let things be and be patient and reduce our desire for things to be a certain way. So these kinds of ways of inwardly contemplating are all connected with this viveka of withdrawing the mind from its uh, from its uh, obsessions and learning to come more simply into the moment. So, first of all, externally exploring how it is, uh, how it can be to simplify. What do we really need? What can we let go of? And then internally, 
Do we really need to, to think about this whole problem right now? Can we trust that the world will still be there and manage without us for a week? You know, when we leave next week, it will all still be going on. <laughs> or do we have to sort of hold it all in our minds for fear that something will collapse? Well, this, this, this is hard for us, actually. It sounds very simple, but it's quite challenging. The simple practice of being with a breath is very humbling for us. And uh, the Buddha taught actually the way, there's a, there's a lovely teaching that um, it's not to say that we should just then go home and throw everything away and you know, live with un, so we're, we're wearing a cloth sack on, on, under a tree or something. One can have a lot of complexity, a lot of possessions, a lot of responsibilities, a lot of duties, and still maintain and practice this inner attitude. One of my, um, the first um, practice lineage that I started with, with Uba Kin, who was a teacher in Burma, he was the attorney general for many years of Burma, he held a very responsible position, and yet he still uh, brought this practice of the Dharma into his his, his uh, worldly life. So the Buddha taught that actually at a very subtle level, there's this beautiful teaching where, uh, in a body of work called the Sutta Nipata, which is a very early text, where um, some students come and to speak to the Buddha, to ask the way of peace. In a chapter called The Way to the Beyond. What is the way of peace? And to, to one of the students, Jatukani, who comes and asks the Buddha, how do I know peace? How do I get beyond this suffering, difficulty in life? The Buddha says, Jatukani... Lose the greed for pleasure and seeing how letting go of this world is peacefulness. There is nothing that you need to hold on to and there is nothing that you need to push away. Dry up the remains of your past and have nothing for your future. If you do not cling even to the present, then you can go from place to place in peace. In some way, this practice of mindfulness is learning to dry up the remains of our past, having nothing for a future and not even clinging to the present. It's a pretty radical idea, isn't it, for the mind? So much of our sense of security, sense of our placement is dependent on our past and where we're going But in reality, it's not to say there shouldn't be a past or a future. Of course there is. But the reality is that we can't really hold the past. It's there, but it's actually very, in a certain way, it's not there. It's gone. We can't really predict the future exactly. It's uncertain. And even the present we can't hold. Because it's, uh, as we're seeing in our meditation, as we look more deeply into this moment, as someone said in the, in the questions, when you really look, you can't really find. Look at a mood that was there, and then you look and look, and then it's not there. So it's not saying, actually, we have to do anything about the past, present, and future, because we can't. <laughs> we can't hold any of it anyway even if we think we are and if we are holding on. But as we start to train in this mindfulness to be more present and just letting things be, then we recognize actually it's peaceful not to hold. 
to hold on. So this training, this training of attentiveness to, to withdraw the attention from its preoccupations, from its ambitions, from speculation, from worry, from anxiety, from the stories, not in a way that's judging any of that or pushing any of that away or having a value judgment, but just for the sake of bringing attentiveness here and now so we can explore the reality, the direct knowing of the moment. In this training that we've been doing of being with the breath, Buddha gave a teaching, a very helpful teaching to help train the mind away from the pathways of thinking where the mind leads itself into trouble. The first way of training is to bring attention from that which is maybe unwholesome or painful to us or distracting to us, to bring the mind to something that's wholesome here and now, to bring the mind, to steady the mind on what we can actually experience here and now, to bring attention here and now. So in this way, this morning and today, we've been practicing with the breath and the body to bring attention again and again to being with the breath within the body. Taking a deeper breath from time to time so one can really feel the breath. Breathing out, letting go, softening through the body, breathing in more deeply. This was uh, in the first foundation called the long breath, really feeling the whole of the breath using the word buddho from time to time we introduce that or using a phrase to help steady attention with the breath. Breathing in the word bud, breathing out the word to, simply meaning be here, be awake, be present. So giving the mind that's usually distracted and wandering Give the mind something to, to connect with, to, to work with. This, is a, this, this practice in and of itself is very, <coughs> it's very powerful, it's very helpful when we find ourselves sometimes in our everyday life or in a, in a retreat when we find ourselves thinking, caught in reactivity, anxious, and being able to know where to take the mind, not to have to uh, repress what we're experiencing, not to have to push away, not to have to... Uh, Deny to know, yes, this is happening. There is maybe a difficult feeling or anxiety, but to be able to turn the attention and to bring it to that which is real, which we can experience, the breath. A word like buddho, to use the word to help steady and also to connect the word with the heart, with this inner listening, with this inner presence. This is a a practice I I really uh, love to do. I do it a lot. I do it a lot because I I find that uh, my mind can get very anxious. There's a lot to get very anxious about. And so, you know, when I get caught up in that anxiety, it it becomes very stressful, body gets tense. It starts to, can start to trigger deeper patterns of uh, feeling, uh, not being able to cope or feeling overwhelmed. 
And then that starts to trigger the need to distract oneself, to stick one's head in the fridge or (laughs) turn on the TV or something. And then that begins to trigger the feeling of being more and more dislocated, more stressed. So so as soon as one can catch before going into that, the, the whole pattern of reactivity, being able to catch at that point, realizing actually there's this training to bring attention here, even if what is here isn't very easy to be with, uncomfortable body or uncomfortable feeling, tones, sensations, moods. It's actually, there's something very... Um, real and satisfying and grounding about being able to be with how it is, with some stability, some gathering of strength of the mindfulness. And then that mindfulness, as that strength of mindfulness and presence gathers, it's very different then to touch the mind that is agitated. It dissolves more quickly. It's able to dissolve those kinds of states more more quickly. So something very simple like this training of not now, returning to the present, here and now, the breath, the slow rhythm of the body, breathing in, put, breathing out, toe. And then the Buddha went on to say, if we find that it's very difficult, this is from the teaching called the uh, five ways of training the mind in, when there's distracted thought, called the Vitaka Santana Sutta. Vitaka means to train or to direct attention. So if we try to bring attentiveness to the breath, but we find the mind is still very caught up, very stuck on some kind of pathway and pattern and storyline, particularly if it's associated with pain or suffering or reactivity or strong emotion or anxiety. We try and bring the mind away from that, but it won't, it won't move. It keeps, there's too much energy. We're too obsessed. The mind's too overwhelmed by some kind of uh, old, unresolved, deeper uh, feeling or memory. Then the the teaching goes on, the Buddha goes on to recommend, say, well, actually consider, you know, cognitively consider, get some perspective and consider what is the value on dwelling on this? this resentment or this fear or this apprehension about what might happen in the future or this old story, what is the value? And he said it's a bit like sometimes when we dwell in these, can dwell in these very uh, unfruitful mind states, he says it's a bit like having a carcass around your neck. Very powerful image, a stinking carcass. <laughs> it's like a beautiful person with a stinking carcass around their neck. This is the image a Buddha gave for when the mind just gets down, gets caught in a vortex of thinking and feeling and memory that's associated with reactivity and pain and resentment. And again, it's not to judge it, but it's actually to get uh, to actually realize, yeah, it's, if I sit here and think about this for an hour, it's not going to be a good outcome. I'm just going to land up feeling even worse. So sometimes even to think like that, it helps knock us out. It helps uh, sort of wake us up again and say, oh, I, I actually want to work towards really training a little bit more carefully not to go down that pathway. I know where that will go. I've been there a hundred times before. I know it inside out. I'm still attracted to going there, but I don't have to. 
As, as mindfulness strengthens, there's more power to be able to turn away. There's not much mindfulness and we just to get, we get washed along by the momentum of the habit of the mind. What we've invested in, what we've energized in the mind over years will have power and energy to it. And we just get we just get shaped, the sense of self and who we are then shaped very powerfully by the stories and the reactivity. And just say, Well, I don't really I don't want to go there anymore. It's pretty fruitless. And then sometimes we do, we have enough mindfulness and strength and training to keep turning away and bringing back to the present, to the breath, to here and now, where we begin to connect with our peace, with our wholesomeness, with our sanity, with our balance, with our groundedness, with the suchness of the moment, the reality of the moment. Rather than some of the nightmares, we can find ourselves uh, compelled to live within. Then the Buddha goes on to say, well, sometimes, you know, these old patterns of the mind that can come up associated with pain, difficulty. He suggested it's a bit like someone that, that, can, that has good eyesight but chooses not to see what's in front of them. This is an interesting, interesting uh, reflection. So example, you might, for example, if some very strong energy comes up, like something associated with a lot of anger, some old story, some situation feels unresolved, and you know if you go there, you're just going to get very caught up, get burnt. It's not that you don't see it, you know it's there, but you kind of ignore it. (laughs) It's an interesting way of relating we might think, oh, psychologically, that's not very skillful. It sounds like repression. But it's not, it's not repression. One knows it's there. One knows, but one knows one doesn't have the capacity to maybe go there right now. If you go there, you just get burnt. You know that you have to strengthen to, to generate more presence. You know, strength of presence, it's strength of awareness, and you go to some of these places which are painful or associated with uh, a lack of stability, fear, doubt, so on. If there's enough presence and strength and mindfulness, one can turn the state around. One can dissolve it, transform it, transmute it. But if there isn't, then we just get washed away. So it's, it's wise, it's skillful to know, I haven't got the capacity to really deal with this right now. It's there. Like, it's like sort of pulling the plug out of, of, of your laptop or taking the phone lines out and refusing to take any calls after a certain time. Because like, you know maybe you've had a very stressful day you haven't got the capacity <laughs> to deal with stuff when you haven't got much energy or time. And you come back to it when you've got more energy. It's the same with these inner working skillfully, these inner tendencies of the mind. So sometimes we know, yeah, this is there, but I don't have to always be compelled to dwell in what is uh, difficult, be drawn there all the time to the problem that needs solving. So it's a bit like uh, containing. Another way of talking about mindfulness is uh, that which can contain. You can hold, but it doesn't have to be compelled or burnt by what is painful. Then if there's still, you know, it's still hard to really uh, move away from the compulsions of the mind, then it goes on to say another way of working, fourth way of working, is this, he makes the analogy as if someone's been running 
and then they realize they can walk as if they're walking and they realize they can sit down as if they've been sitting down they realize they can lay down sometimes this is called relaxing the sankhara or actually helping deconstruct the pattern of the mind again this is another way of saying one doesn't have to keep running with the states of mind with the momentum that's there one can start to look what is actually going on here you really inquire when we're caught up in some state or some story some thought form how real is this now so it's a bit like asking the question what is what is real here now Because some of these states can be so powerful that they really color the whole sense of who we are. I'm someone that's not a very good meditator. I'm someone that's got a lot of doubt about what I need to do. I'm very anxious, or I'm not a good person, or I'm a good person, or I'm doing really well. You know, all these different thought forms and ideas and views and perspectives. And, you know, it's like, what is really real here right now? So all of these begin to give us these ways of working to challenge, to put aside, to take the mind, to train the mind, to keep coming back to what is actually here and now, begins to help strengthen this capacity for mindfulness, presence. Sometimes with uh, you know, meditation, it's just a, so a question of being really, really patient with the mind and the heart and the body. We sit here and then we want the mind to be peaceful and it's not. Or there's something going on in our life that's very big. It has a strong impact. You know, that it's not just going to go away. But it's very different to be able to be with what is perhaps very strong or very impinging on our experience. It's very different to be with that, with patience, with this spaciousness and with, with awareness, than to be with it with reactivity and judgment. So it's not always a question of of what's happening in the mind, body, and heart, but our relationship to it. Can we be here with a bit more, moment by moment, just a little bit more attentiveness, a little bit more commitment to being aware, a bit more presence, a little bit more patience. And it's often just that little adjustment that can make the difference between the struggle in the moment and the ability to really more deeply begin to really be here, really be here with how it is. A small shift. And as we really do begin to bring attention, then the Buddha encourages us to really be with the body and breath in this first foundation. What is the body and breath? To know directly this is the encouragement of mindfulness, is to know directly the, the direct way. What is the breath? What is the body? Not how we view the body through our thoughts and our perceptions of our body, but what is the direct experience of our embodiment, of our breath? Yes, um, recently again, when we were just now in, in South Africa, we, um, we had, um, we usually do a long retreat. Oh, it's actually summer there, it's winter here, summer there. We usually do a long retreat at our hermitage. And then for the first time this year, we took uh, some guests, some friends, 
um, on a tour. We went to these different game parks, wilderness areas, um, up to um, see on the beaches up near the border of Mozambique there, the, uh, every year these big prehistoric leatherhead and loggerhead turtles come up to lay their eggs, really magnificent. And uh, walking in the, in the night on the beach for miles to try and see these, these amazing beings. And it was interesting because um, you could feel and see that uh, uh, being in these environments, these, uh, you know, it's really the wonderful environments in these wilderness areas that the mind wanting to know, what is that called? What's that called? What's this called? What's that bird? What's that animal? <laughs> And the mind's always going out so, and say, so, oh, I've got a name for it now. It's a rhino, it's a, it, it, it's a lion, it's a giraffe, it's something. Oh, now I know what it is. Oh, I can relax because I know what it is. Yeah. Oh, that's a tree, that's a person, that's that. Oh, that's, what's the name of it? What's the sound? What's that call of that? And I could see how, how our minds, because we were in these somewhat unfamiliar environments, would want to do that with the unfamiliar environment. If I've got the name for it, then I know what it is. You know, we can relax, but, but we don't really know what it is. <laughs> yeah. And then sometimes the, the mind would just drop that, and then you just it's there, really present. We were walking at one point, we had this wonderful guide, Zulu guy, who was guiding us. And he just, he just could read the bush, so, so awesome, all the sounds. There's a certain bird that lives with the rhinos that warns them when, when there's some danger. So there's a certain call, so he'd hear this call and he'd go, ah, you know, slow down or back up because we're just about to walk into six rhino or something. And then you, you glimpse them. And if you can get beyond your mind going, that's a rhino... <laughs> And actually be with the experience is very awesome. It's very, it's very prehistoric in a way. Just sitting there, came across this scene with these buffalo and rhino. It's actually quite dangerous. And they're just sitting there in the dust. They hadn't really heard us because we were downwind. They're just sitting there. And it's just very, it's marvelous. It's, it's just very thrilling. That wilderness, that wilderness is us, it's in us. But we've, we've distanced ourselves from it so much because of this mind that goes out to name and to know things. And in that knowing and naming things, it holds everything as a distance. We hold ourselves as a distance. We think we know ourselves. We think we know this body and this breath and this marvelous wilderness of the heart this flow of life, because we have names for things. So this mindfulness isn't about, I mean, maybe some aspect of some training of mindfulness can be to name things, but it isn't about that kind of knowing that has a name, and then we think, oh, we know. But it's a direct entry into the direct experience. What is it to breathe? What is it to feel? What is it to be embodied? What is it to bring awareness here and now without all the complexity of our life but in the direct simplicity of breathing being? And as we we explore, as we're with one breath, with this attentiveness, this attention that has begins to withdraw its preoccupations, withdraw from the preoccupations and the longing and the grief and the disappointment and the fascination and the hankering and the desire for the world. This attentiveness, the power of attentiveness as it begins to really enter 
the directness of our experience. And we recognize that there isn't the breath, the body. There's just the suchness of the experience and within the flow of sensation, of feeling, of the breath and the experience of the body, within that experience there's this fundamental vimutisarasapetama, this fundamental spaciousness, brightness, peace. It's right in the midst of all conditions, right in the midst of the changeability of the breath. It isn't a breath because it's always changing and flowing in the midst of our embodiment. It isn't a body because there's always vibration, movement, flow, pressure, sensation. It isn't a mind because a mind is alive, constantly shifting and changing images, perceptions. It's just the suchness of the moment. And that moment has the taste of peace. A peace we can really know directly as the mind, the heart, lets go and enters. Abiding of awareness here and now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.